This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Launchpad on Business Radio. Welcome to Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 132. I'm your host this week, Carl Ulrich. I'm Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at the Wharton School, where I teach entrepreneurship, innovation, and product design. I co-host Launchpad with Rob Connybeer, and Rob is Managing Director of Shasta Ventures, a leading Silicon Valley venture capital firm, and Rob and I switch off hosting duties. Let's jump right in. My first guest on today's show, joining me via Zoom, is Irving Fain, who is the founder and CEO of Bowery Farming. Irving, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Carl. All right, so let's first things first, let's just point our listeners to your website. So it's BoweryFarming.com. That's B-O-W-E-R-Y Farming.com. Give us the elevator pitch. Tell us what Bowery Farming does. Absolutely. So we, we are not your traditional farming company. Uh, I, can say, I can say that. Uh, so at Bowery, we build large warehouse scale indoor farms. And in our farms, we actually stack our crops from the floor to all the way up to the ceiling. And we grow in a totally controlled and contained environment under lights that mimic the spectrum of the sun. And because of the way that we grow, we're actually able to grow 365 days of the year, completely independent of weather and seasonality. So it is reliable, consistent supply of high quality produce year round. On top of that though, we actually are able to grow completely pesticide free, completely agrochemical free. So there's no pesticides, no fungicides, no herbicides, no insecticides, pure and clean crops as you can get. And if you do that in the field, the first challenge you have is your quality suffers. The second is that your yield drops precipitously. And in our case, and for any of your listeners who are in the tri-state area or the mid-Atlantic region, hopefully they've tried our product, but we can tell you that the product is as good as you will taste. Tastes like it comes out of your summer garden. And from a yield perspective, we're able to grow more than twice as fast as the field for a number of our crops. We get more crop cycles per year compared to the field. And we actually get more yield out of every individual crop cycle. So we end up over a hundred times plus more productive per square foot of farmland. And we save over 95% of the water when we grow. So really is a totally new way of thinking about farming. And what, what allows this to happen is we leverage proprietary robotics and automation, which our team has developed, as well as software and computer vision and machine learning to monitor and maintain the plants and make sure that they get exactly what they need when they need it. And lastly, we're actually able to build our farms very close to the points of consumption. So we build our farms in and around the communities that we serve. And so it's a day or two from when we harvest our product to when it gets delivered versus weeks of time or months of time in the existing fresh food supply chain. All right. Well, that's really cool. Let, let's, I have the benefit of being on Zoom and you've got a cool background showing a photo of one of your farms, but yes. So, so describe for us, describe for us what we'd see if we walked into one of your facilities. Yeah, it's so, the, I think the two things that, that surprise people when they come to Bowery is first of all, it does not look like the farm the way you would imagine it. But second of all, and equally important is it smells very much like a delicious farm that you would imagine, uh, you know, in your mind when you walk into a fresh farm growing fresh crops, you can smell the basil, you can smell the cilantro, and you can really smell what's actually growing. Um, 
you know, what, what you really see is a very large room with crops, you know, all the way as far as you can see and as high as you can see. And all of those crops are under lights, surrounded by, you know, our irrigation system, which gives the crops the waters and their, the water and their nutrients. And then surrounded by, which you can't see in the photo either, robots that are moving our crops around. And that if you were to actually look on the process, you know, robots that are doing seeding, that are doing harvesting, that are doing packaging. So all that work being done through automation with hand in hand with our farmers. Yeah. So, so just at a little geekier level, these, these crops are grown horizontally. So they're on effectively horizontal shelves or racks. And what, right. what's the, for a typical crop, what kind of pitch can you get them on? I mean, it, the, the interesting thing is it really depends on the crop that you're growing, depending on the fish you would, that you would need. And some crops you can even grow at different heights and in different ways, depending upon the product that you're putting underneath them as well. Um, so there isn't a set standard pitch necessarily that one would use. It really is crop dependent in, in many ways. But, but I'm just, you know, just eyeballing your, your, the photo behind you, it looks like maybe a, a uh, 20 foot ceiling and you've got maybe four layers something like that yeah it's a lot higher than that more layers and like for less distance i would say you know oh, okay. it could be anywhere from a few feet to to even less than that in some cases if we wanted it to be okay very cool all right so you you threw out a number 100x more productive which comes from you aren't governed by season uh, you're, yep. able, you're able to optimize light, you're able to optimize, you're able to run continuously season after season after season. Uh, right. You're able to optimize the other growing parameters. You threw out this number 100x. Does yep. that still make the benefit, is, is that good enough to make it uh, dominate uh, conventional farming in all respects, or do you have to deliver on other benefits for this? Well, so, so th there's a, a, a couple of components. To this. So what allows you to be more productive? So it's a hundred times plus some crops even vastly more than that. And the reason is, as you pointed out, you've got the verticality against a single layer of farmland. Yeah. You have the lack of seasonality. So a lot more crop cycles in the year but there is greater productivity per crop cycle as well. And that, that comes from the optimization that we're able to do. And a lot of that is driven by the systems itself, the growing systems which we design and develop, but also the Bowery operating system, which is our software system. It's like the brains of our farm, which manages the farm in real time on its own. And that drives greater productivity. That said, to really answer your question, what, what, we're doing at Bowery is not just innovation in farming. Certainly it's a completely new way of thinking about farming, but what we're really doing is by virtue of innovating farming, we're able to innovate the fresh food supply chain itself. And so if you look at the traditional fresh, fresh supply chain, crops pass through a number of different players over the course of their life. Maybe it's one player that owns all the different steps, but there are many, many steps required to get a crop from whether it's Salinas Valley or Arizona or Florida or South America or wherever it's coming from to the grocery store that we go pick it up in, the restaurant where we buy it, and then to our, to our home. And what we are doing at Bowery is we are circumventing an enormous number of those steps in the supply chain. We're growing more efficiently and effectively. We have a lot less waste and therefore a lot of the cost in that supply chain that gets moved around from player to player to player also goes away 
And so it just changes the entire economics of the way the supply chain functions. All right, I mean, but those, those are still, I mean, that's super cool. I mean, it's amazing. And, but, but those are all still behind the curtain economic benefits sure. to the system. And I guess my question is still, okay, if, that, if that's all dominates farming, then all farming will go this way, right? Uh, and, and the question is, is, is there some other benefit you have to invoke, like chemical-free or ah. it's better or something like that to make this work? Yeah, yeah so, so there, the first thing I tell you is we are selling on the store shelf today at or below the price of organic, organic produce that we compete with. So there is not a premium we're asking a consumer to pay in any way um, beyond organic. And ultimately, what we're focused on at Bowery is democratizing access to high quality, fresh local produce. And, you know, we believe everybody should have access to high quality produce and that we can do that. And so as our costs continue to come down and we continue to generate more efficiency, we'll be able to do that, you know, going further than we are today. That said, there's a set of crops that I don't believe you're going to see indoor farming focus on. So could I be wrong? And in 20 years, could you and I be on another podcast and we're growing corn and wheat and soy? I guess, I guess it's possible. <laughs> yeah. but, but I don't imagine those kind of staple commodity crops or crops that, that are well suited for indoor farming necessarily. Um, the good news is the market that is well suited for indoor farming is enormous. It's about $100 billion a year in crops in the U.S. alone and about a trillion dollars a year globally. Yeah, cool. All right, super cool. And and then just just one other sort of factual question. What you you said tri-state, and we're you know we're we're a global audience. So which tri-state? Yeah, sorry, sorry. <laughs> and where so we are, have two. Yeah. We have two, so the the company is based in New York City. We have two farms that are in New Jersey, right over the river, that service New Jersey, New York. Connecticut, Long Island, what, what we call the sort of New York, New Jersey, Connecticut tri-state area. Um, we also have recently built our third farm, which is in Maryland, close to Baltimore. And that farm is servicing Maryland and servicing the DC area and part of Pennsylvania as well. Yeah, and does it make sense, uh, it, for, for what you're doing, does it make sense to have a greenfield site that's just, you know, build a new building just a little bit outside the metropolitan area, or does it make sense to make re to reuse uh, sort of more legacy industrial space? So the answer can be C, both, right? It okay. doesn't make sense to build a farm necessarily in the urban metropolitan area. Right? It doesn't right. make sense to be in the middle of Philadelphia. It doesn't make sense to be in the middle of New York City. Um, we can be a bit outside of those cities and still be vastly closer to our consumers and our retail partners than the traditional supply chain is. Um, we certainly can come in and repurpose and use existing industrial buildings, you know, in essentially turning non-arable land arable, which is much of what we're doing. We can also come in and build a greenfield building on a former industrial site and do the same thing. Either, either of those options works. Got it. Okay, well, let's go to the origin story. It's it seems sort of obvious and traditional. You went to Brown, English major at Brown, and then you worked in media and marketing. So that led you right into farming. <laughs> well, to be fair, to be even more traditional, I was an English major at Brown, and then I went to be an investment banker for a few years. Uh, uh, yeah. Yes, yes. Um, so I, I, I was 
the 21 year old kid who naively said, okay, I'm going to go learn business. I'll go be a banker for a while. And so I, I did learn quite a bit. Uh, I don't know that it was the quote unquote business education and certainly the entrepreneurial opportunities that are available to people today are, are, are vastly larger than they were when I was coming out of school, but I did do that. And then uh, I, I took a year, traveled, which was a great thing and, and a, a good way to use my time. And I came back and that started, you know, over 15 years of working in and around the innovation economy and in technology. Uh, I did a, a little bit of venture investing with a couple of folks who were looking to get a, a fund off the ground. And it was interesting and exciting because I was working with the companies I wanted to, to ultimately start. And even as a banker, I was helping companies raise late stage capital. And for the bank, it was essentially lead gen to be the book runner. For me, it was a great experience to work with the kind of companies I wanted to start eventually. Um, but but all, ultimately, I realized I wanted to really be an entrepreneur and, and to build something. And so I actually went to Clear Channel and uh, I helped build with a small team, you know, and figure out what was digital going to mean for this older school radio company. And while I was there, um, the iPhone comes out and the App Store comes out and we saw an opportunity to take our thousand plus radio station asset and turn it into a singular app on this App Store that was being invented. And uh, there was born iHeartRadio. And so built iHeartRadio with a small team there. Um, but really, my heart and soul was always in, in, in entrepreneurship. And so I was spending four or five nights a week with around the kitchen table with a friend, kicking the tires of different ideas. And, and that led to my first company called CrowdTwist, which I founded in around 2010. Um, built that company up over about six years. We raised about 25 million in venture capital. The company grew and yeah, looked out. And, and I think one of the big lessons I learned was you've got to not only love starting something, but you've got to love the thing you're starting to, um, because eventually it becomes much more about the industry you're in and the business you're building, not just the starting of a company. And I didn't, I didn't have an enormous amount of passion for enterprise loyalty. We were in the loyalty and analytics space. It was an enterprise software business. We sold the big Fortune 500s. Um, and I also wanted to work on something that I thought was personally meaningful me to personally meaningful to me, and also could make a broader difference, uh, you know, societally. Because uh, I am a big believer that technology in the innovation world can solve hard problems. And that pushed me to, to look outside and to, to think beyond uh, where I was. And I started to spend a lot of time in agriculture. And it didn't take me long to realize that agriculture is the largest consumer of resources globally um, by quite a large market. 70% of the world's water goes to agriculture. About 6 billion pounds of pesticides are used every single year across the globe. And you know, we've lost 30% of our arable farmland in the last 40 years. And then at the same time, you look at the world changing, you know, nine to 10 billion people in the next 30 years, a need for 50 to 70% more food. And all the while, 70 to 80% of people are going to be living in and around cities. And that last stat really caught me. And I started to get really obsessed with this question of how do you provide fresh food to urban environments? And how do you do that in a way that's both more efficient and more sustainable? And I started to spend a lot of time trying to answer that question and the question really of could you do that scalably and could you do it in a way that's economically viable? What's the best way to get that done? If, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 132. I'm Carl Ulrich and I'm joined by Irving Fain, who's the founder and CEO of Bowery Farming. Irving, I, I you know, I, it's super cool. I love this stuff. And I... 
I think you might be the third um, farm tech, you know, sort of indoor farming company I've had. Or I've done the show for four years. I think one of my first guests was Freight Farms. I had Kimball Musk on a little, uh, you know, not yep. too long ago. So how do you, how do you guys win at this, or or is winning even the right question? Uh, yeah. Well, I think there's. Listen, you know, Carl, you you teach entrepreneurship. You you see thousands of entrepreneurs, tens of thousands of entrepreneurs. I what, the first thing I tell you is it's great to see a lot of people focusing on a problem that matters to all of us. So I am really thrilled to know that there are other people who are thinking about the problems and the questions that I'm thinking about. And even more broadly, it's really great. Even in the five years I've been doing this, the agriculture technology landscape has grown substantially, which is, it's fantastic to see people focusing on the broader agricultural ecosystem. Cause as we both know, it's pretty important to the future for all of us. Um, you know, that said, one of the things we did is spent a lot of time really early on before raising any money, before building anything substantial, just testing and learning. And essentially the question I wanted to understand was, could you solve this problem of, of, of urban agriculture essentially? Could you do it in a scalable and viable way at all? And if so, what was the best approach to it? And we really looked at any and all approaches and, and didn't have a horse in the race, if you would. I was, I was agnostic to what the solution was. And it was through a year and a half plus of testing and learning that, that led to the technology, the system, and the approach that we use at Bowery. And I think that really one of the key advantages for us is, I think, first of all, in this industry, scale is going to matter a lot. And it doesn't mean that there's not a place for other solutions. There certainly is but scale has distinct advantages. There's no question that automation matters as well, which is why scale and automation go hand in hand. And I think one of the other things that we've come to realize and appreciate is, is in something as complex as what we're doing at Bowery, when you're dealing with plant science and essentially ecosystems, but supply chain and delivery and plant management, the software component and the technology component that we develop at Bowery is absolutely critical. The Bowery OS is is fundamental to who we are and to our success. And so we have, from the very early days, invested heavily and spent an enormous amount of time developing, whether it's the software technology, the computer vision that we're building, the, a lot of the artificial intelligence we leverage, the automation. And that's a really important part to our success and to what we're doing at Bowery because that unlocks the economics as well as the varieties that we will ultimately be able to grow. Uh, the other thing though, I think is critical to understand is the, the food that we're growing itself also is exceptional and has to be exceptional because at some point, food is so personal. You know, we all eat every day. We feed it to our families. We spend time with friends around the, around the dining room table and all the amazing robotics, all the amazing software in the world isn't going to matter if we give you Bowery product and you don't love what you're tasting. And so tasting this incredible flavor, this incredible vibrancy, like rediscovering what produce can be and what produce is really meant to be is as important, honestly, as all of the amazing technology that our team is building every single day. Yeah. You know, I, I noticed, I mean, your website looks terrific and I, it looks like you, you spent a few bucks on, on branding and, and re-envisioning your identity. Uh, but I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about brand and how important it is to pull the consumer demand uh, uh, for this product. Yeah. So I'd tell you, it, it is critically important. And if you went back to the very first pitch deck and the earliest conversations we were having, you know, when, when this was just an idea and then candidly a bunch of slides, the business always boiled down to three pieces. It was the farms themselves, 
It was the Bowery operating system and the software piece of it, and it was the brand. And they were equal weight. They were three legs of the stool. And we invested in the brand very early on because of that. And one of the reasons is, is, is if you look at food in general, that people and consumers are asking questions about where their food is coming from, how their food is made or how it's grown. You know, people want to know more about and care more about the provenance of the products that they're consuming. And, you know, this is pre-COVID. Now you look at what's happening today, that's arguably even more important. And there actually just historically has not been much brand in the fresh produce category, primarily because it's a category with a number of different players, a lot of different, a lot of volatility from the production side, the need for consistency on the retailer side and distributors and middlemen step in and make sure that there's product on the shelf when we walk into the store. And we have an opportunity to, to tell a story. We have an opportunity to build a brand that's about trust and honesty. It's about responsible growing and, and sustainability and quality and taste and flavor. And it's been exciting to watch not only consumers gravitate to that, but retailers really gravitating to that as well, because they're excited to have a story to tell. And if you think about it, produce is one of the most important, if not the most important part of the grocery store. There's a reason why in every grocery store you walk into, the first thing you see is the produce section. It is the reason you choose which grocery store to shop at. You know, your Cheerios that you buy will be the same no matter where you walk into, or at least they better be. And, and yet your produce changes and produce will set the tone for the rest of the fresh part of the store, you know, meats and fish and things like that as well. So retailers care enormously about produce and to put a product like ours that's local year round, that's pesticide free, that's grown sustainably, that has a good story to tell. That's as exciting for them as it is for the consumers to pick it up and buy it. Yeah. You know, I want to go back to something, our previous, just previous topic. You, you said you spent a lot of time, I loved what you said, by the way, you were agnostic on the solution. You really just were focused on the problem. That was awesome. But then you said something interesting. You said you spent a lot of time testing and learning. This, this seems like kind of a hard thing for somebody yeah. in the garage to test and learn. So tell us a little it, bit about how you was out testing yeah. and learning. Yeah. It's interesting, and it's partly why we sort of jumped into eventually building our first farm, because there was only so much testing one could do. It's certainly a lot harder than building a software product online, you know, hacking up your MVP, the stories you hear about. The first testing for us was was either physical testing or, you know, in-depth understanding and modeling around all of the different ways one could build an indoor urban farm, right? It could be a greenhouse, it could be a container, it could be you know, different hydroponic models, ver vertical hydroponic, horizontal, aeroponic, aquaponic. I mean, we really wanted to understand the benefits and the virtue of each, you know, what were the costs of each side, the down, the downsides. And so where we could test, we tested. Where it was hard to test on mass, we just dove in and learned and understood and talked to as many people as we could. But the key for us was to really not find ourselves tied to a model because we got excited about it, but rather tied to a model because it was the right answer. And one of the always viable answers was there is no good answer because yeah. I think where and how we spend our time as entrepreneurs, as anyone in the world, it's the most important decision we make. And so I wanted to make sure that if we were going to commit a decade plus more to building something fantastic, like we needed to be doing it the right way. And we needed to be doing something that had an end goal. It was only when we got to your point, Carl, to a place where we said, listen, another three months, six months of testing is not gonna yield three or six months of value. We need to build a farm and we need yeah. to build something of more substantial size. We had enough conviction in the model. That was when we went out, we raised our first round and we started building. Yeah. You know, I, I gotta believe there there's a hundred 
master's or doctoral theses in ag schools about these kinds of systems. And so there's probably a lot of science, a lot of modeling that went into, that has gone into thinking about this idea. Yes. How, how predictive was that stuff of what you actually discovered when you went and built the? It's, that is a fantastic question. Funny enough, I don't know if anyone's ever asked me that before. Um, so, so I will tell you that we, we were really, it was important to me that we kept ourselves honest. And so we were diligent about not only going and reading and talking to people who thought indoor farming was going to be the largest industry the world had ever seen, but I wanted to talk to everybody who thought indoor farming was an absolute impossibility, was a total fool's errand and a complete waste of time. Because I think you needed to understand and, re and, and really truly grasp everybody's perspective and point of view to make the best choice possible we could for moving forward. And I think we found that there was lots of kernels of great knowledge across the board, but at some point there is an enormous difference in building and running a large scale indoor farm versus researching, writing about, and testing on a much smaller scale, and therefore extrapolating about a future farm. And so I think we found in many cases a lot of the research that was not necessarily as positive in certain areas. We understood why the research had gotten to the conclusion that they had, but ultimately over time have proven that some of that research just was not right. Now, there's also been some great research out there that, that's been done about what's possible, what's not. Um, but, but I think the doing of something commercially at some point was more important than the research of it academically. Yeah. Yeah. And, and at what point did you go get some, some expertise that is, you know, there's, there's this tension, right? Between you don't want to be shackled by what's been tried in the past. On the other hand, geez, there's some domain knowledge here, right? Yep. And, and so I, I always say to people, you know, naivety is, is one of your, your greatest assets as an entrepreneur because you sort of, you know, careen into walls and spaces that no right-minded individual would ever run into. Um, and, and sometimes that, that, that results in bruises and bumps, but sometimes it results in incredible opportunity. And so I think, you know, because I, I'd done this before, I'd been through a process, I, I had a balanced respect for the naivety that I knew I had, but also the industry knowledge that had come before me also. And so we made sure to spend time and talk to plenty of folks who had either been in the indoor farming space, talk to plenty of folks who've been on, again, academic researchers, you know, some of the schools that had spent a lot of time looking at controlled environmental agriculture, particularly folks in Arizona, Cornell, those schools have spent a lot of time in these spaces. And we wanted to talk to the naysayers and the positive folks as well. Um, and talking to just a lot of people who've been in the greenhouse industry, which had been around for a lot longer than we have to understand their perspectives, what they saw, what, why they were bullish or why they were incredibly bearish. And so we, we sought out a lot of industry knowledge relatively early on. I think an important piece was how did you balance that and equate it alongside everything else you were learning as well. Um, so let's just, we just have a minute left, but let's, let's turn to COVID. So what, what happened mid-March to you guys? I, like everybody else, the world flipped upside down and, you know, we were in food. So we were sort of at the epicenter of the flipping in some ways. And so we saw, you know, what was already strong demand just explode in over a few months. You know, our, our online business more than 3 x 
our brick and mortar business almost three X as well, which was interesting in spite of, you know, foot traffic being down over 35% in New York. Um, and I think the, the virtues and values of what we're doing, safe supply, sure supply and simple supply only became more important to consumers and to retailers. And since then, you know, we, 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 we were in about 92 stores at the start of this year. We're in over 500 as I'm sitting here and talking to you and we'll be in over 650 by the end of September. And that's not only COVID driven, but certainly that's fueled the intensity and the enthusiasm from retailers. Yeah, so you were already, you already had a retail focus, right? Yes, we did. Yeah, yes. And, then, and then just uh, just a little follow up on that. In terms of your actual operations and your workforce, you were probably defined as essential industry. Yeah, that's uh, right. But, but uh, did you, did you also, uh, and, and, and you're fairly distanced, right? Yes. Well, the, the value of all the automation that we use in our farms is that, you know, whereas the, the photos you see of sort of the meat processing plants where people are on top of each other shoulder to shoulder, because of all our automation, we don't need to do that. And so the one thing we, we focused on immediately and we prioritized above all else was health and safety of our people and figuring out how do we make sure the people who are at Bowery were healthy and safe at all times. And so to your point, we were a critical essential infrastructure. We never shut down. We've been running, you know, since, uh, you know, things sort of start happened mid-March, but we, like everybody else, have continuously iterated and optimized and we've learned and we've adjusted. And I suspect that will continue to some extent as we're learning more. Great. All right, Erin, well, we're, we're out of time, but thanks so much for making the time. Thanks so much for having me, Carl. All right, once again, Bowery Farming, that's B-O-W-E-R-Y farming.com. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.